had an early visit from winter. Now we are back to late summer here in the Rocky Mountains. While much of the West is covered under a blanket of haze and smoke, this is Go West Young Podcast, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. Usually we start with a news update, but today's episode is all news. We're talking about wildfires, which as of the time we are recording this on Wednesday, have burned more than four and a half million acres, killed at least 35 people, and cost more than $2 billion just in suppression costs this year alone. So this week, we are diving into the science of wildfires and climate change and human activity. Our guest is an ecologist who specializes in wildfires and forest dynamics, especially in the wildland urban interface. Nate Mekowitz was a postdoc research fellow at the University of Colorado Boulder's Earth Lab. Now he's a data scientist at Battelle, and his research is exceptionally relevant to what is going on across the West right now. Nathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to start with the analysis. You and your Earth Lab team just released last week. It looks at housing and wildfire data. And it turns out if you look just at the fires that threaten homes in the U.S., people are responsible for almost all of them. That's correct, Aaron. Um, what we found is that using some novel data sets, um, big data sets from Zillow, from um, governmental ignition records, we were able to co-locate those in and outside of the wild and urban interface, an area on the landscape where homes intermingle with flammable uh, vegetation. And when we were looking at those relationships, we found that roughly 97% of all of the homes that are, all the ignitions that are started in the wild and urban interface are started by humans and they threaten homes. So we are putting fire on landscapes where communities are already the most vulnerable to wildfire. So essentially, we have built ourselves into a lot of this problem just by virtue of where we are putting houses? Exactly. So wildfire, it really needs three ingredients. So it needs a warm climate, it needs fuels, and it needs ignitions. What we've done is really changed all three of those ingredients in favor of fire. And we've built tens of thousands, tens of millions, excuse me, of homes in harm's way of that wildfire. So our analysis found that from 1990 to 2015, we built 32 million more homes in the wildland urban interface. Wow. So obviously the, the big fires this month are getting all the headlines. The pictures are terrifying. But is there some risk that we're missing the big picture in terms of what the threats are to people's homes? Should homeowners be more worried about the small fire that doesn't make the national news but does end up burning down a few homes? And that's what our analysis exactly showed. So what we're basically saying is fire is fire. No matter if it's a large fire or a small fire, those small fires do matter to homes. And those small fires that are generally all human started, about 92%, are less than four kilometers, but they have threatened the vast majority of homes in our analysis. So they, the, the concern is that we know that there's uh, a link of climate change to more fire. And if we're starting a lot of small fires, those small fires may not be small in coming years. We may see those small fires turn into fires that we're experiencing at the moment. Um, and if that is truly the case, we're going to have a much larger wildfire problem on our hands 
than we already do, which is uh, quite the <laughs> quite the conundrum. So, so walk us through those climate change uh, and, and the climate change effects, how that fits into the big picture here, because I know a lot of the, the Earth Lab colleagues uh, have done some of the, the leading academic work on that. Yeah, so that's a really uh, interesting question. So what we've seen is that there's across the West, humans have caused warming that has effectively made fuels drier and doubled the amount of Western forests that have burned since 1984. So that's a direct link to anthropogenic climate change. That's a doubling outside of what we would have seen in the removal of, or the absence of human climate change. And in California, we also know there's a direct link between warmer temperatures and fires, particularly in forests. And since the 1970s, the amount of burned area in California has increased fivefold. And we've seen a strong summertime effect in that change. And warmer temperatures in the fall, which is which is also drying out fuels, and they also bring in lots of large wind-driven fires, and they become more likely. So there really is this multiple-tiered effect where, again, those three ingredients of warm climate, fuels, and ignitions, we now know we're changing the ignitions, and we have documentation that we're also changing the climate. So it sounds like a positive feedback loop. I assume then that the drought conditions that we're seeing in much of the West this summer must also then play in there. Without a doubt. So a colleague of mine, he looked at the past 120 years, just as a uh, kind of off-the-cuff analysis, and he posted it on Twitter. And it's using some of his published data. And his name is Park Williams from, the, uh, from Columbia University. And what he found is that in the past 120 years, using his data product, California in August saw the warmest and driest conditions throughout that 120-year record. Wow. So how much of this current situation then is climate change versus things like grazing or a century of fire suppression where Mm -hmm. we put out every small fire as it popped up? How do you quantify the the various degrees to which all of these different uh, interacting effects are responsible yeah that's that's the million dollar question right now so in california we certainly see there's a climate effect on these fires being larger so a quarter of the state's top 20 largest fires since 1932 are currently active not not burned but active and 17 of the uh, of those 20 have occurred since 2003 so there's a clear relationship that climate change is changing the type of fire we're seeing on the landscape. But as you had mentioned, fire suppression, where we put out all fires and we don't let fires burn into where they should be burning, given historical uh, ecological constructs, that alone is making fuels more abundant. And then if we dry those abundant fuels and then we burn them, fires will become larger and more aggressive. And then you throw the, the into the mix that we're igniting a lot of fires, humans are, and then we're building next to those fire-suppressed locations. It really is a perfect storm. Can we smoky the bear our way out of this? <laughs> if we just, if humans somehow magically stopped starting wildfires tomorrow, would, would that, would that, you know, solve the problem? It's certainly one key solution to it. So I like to say that Smokey needs to move to the suburbs. Okay. He needs to have a more presence 
near communities. So it's not that we need to eliminate fires, that age old message where we need to stop all fires. What we need to do is have humans stop starting fires that aren't supposed to happen. So we've increased the fire season length by three months. And that extension is putting a lot more fire on the, on the ground near homes. So if we can relay the message that we actually have the power to remove ignitions in those communities, that is one of those three key ingredients that we can change tomorrow. What are the other policy implications? We've seen a lot of talk this week about forest management without a whole lot of clarity as to what that Mm -hmm. means. Can we log our way out of this? Can we rake our way out of this? Uh, (laughs) Or or, or does this mean really getting serious about prescribed burns because that's the only way you can actually get rid of this fuel buildup? So that is also a very nuanced question. So no, we cannot rake it. That's the easy solution. (laughs) We cannot do that. Yeah, a quick vacuum is not going to be the answer to this problem. And when you log something, that's also an interesting question because a logging is a discrete disturbance. So if you go in and log a stand, you're actually creating a disturbance on that landscape. And then if we have another disturbance like a wildfire, it may not actually rebound the way we would expect. So by trampling that landscape, removing nutrients by removing the seeds from that area, when a fire comes through, it may not actually be able to regrow. So the, so the act of logging can make a, a landscape less fire resilient? It can. Okay. Um, and so there's been a lot of studies looking at that exact question. And there are ways you can, um, you can log and thin appropriately. But the way that, but I'm, I'm hesitant on saying logging is the solution because that can be blown out of out of proportion at the top-down scale, at the, govern- at, the, at the policy level scale. And really the best way to combat wildfires is putting more fire in areas that we know will burn in times of the year that when fire risk is low. So because most of these forests, grasslands in the West, they need fire. They want fire, they're conducive to fire, chaparral, in Southern California, that plant, for instance, has turpentine in their leans. They, they need it to regrow. And if we remove that from the landscape, we start seeing larger, more, um, not socially, not only socially destructive fires, but also the fire behaviors that are difficult to suppress if it becomes, if the fire becomes close to, uh, to homes and communities. So by removing that vegetation, uh, as a preventative measure using a, a technique that the forests are resilient to, aka fire, then we'll have a much healthier system and then will be much easier to manage once that has been accomplished. So if you think about uh, a wildfire it in, in a forest, let's, just, let's use a forest as, it, as this exa- example. If you have a fire and it is a stand clearing, so all the forest has been burnt down to the root, it's gonna take a long time for that forest to regrow. So essentially we have now maybe a 50 to 100 year window where fire will be devoid of that in that landscape. And that landscape wanted fire to begin with. So if we can keep doing this across the West near communities, 
uh, we will have essentially a mosaic of fire-free areas near homes. But you have to be willing to hold, start those fires when it's safe. I mean, it sounds like you're, you are telling folks if you don't want to be choking on smoke all summer, it means there's going to be some amount of smoke that you're going to see in February, March, April time period. Exactly. And, and that would be the case for years to come. And we're not going to be removing what we're seeing right now in the West if we don't start to do those preventative measures in the off season. What other hard choices do we have to make in terms of zoning, in terms of building codes? Are our states and cities, and I'm thinking especially California, Oregon, Colorado, are they going to have to make difficult decisions about where and how to rebuild homes? Without a doubt. So, yes, we can put more prescribed burning, we can burn all year, but that doesn't mean anything if the fire, if, if the homes are not resilient to that fire. So there are multiple ways we can accomplish this. So the first one that I like to use is a FireWise community. And FireWise is a program that helps individuals and neighborhoods become more resilient to fire. And they'll come in, they'll assess yards, homes, neighborhoods, make recommendations for what to clear, how far to clear from your home, and prepare your home as a as if you have a buffer of fire-free land between the last piece of vegetation in your home. So that's one way to accomplish it. And you could do that as an individual. You can go through FireWise. They'll also make recommendations on building materials. So maybe a, a metal roof, fire retardant uh, exterior. Um, you have different types of fire retardant gutters, for mm. instance, so you could use. Eaves and overhangs, that sort of exactly, thing. Exactly, exactly. But the problem is a lot of that uh, investment in changing infrastructure is on the homeowners. Um, it, it, it's, it's their price tag. Mm -hmm. So what, what you want to invest in is basically on you. And there's really, there's very few uh, public programs that can help incentivize and help kind of burden some of that cost. It almost sounds like the sort of thing that the insurance industry could end up driving if if anyone has looked at the relative costs of retrofits versus rebuilding and would know that kind of cost-benefit analysis, seems like it would be the insurance companies. I mean, do you know, are there economists looking at this from that angle? There are. Um, none within within my, my sphere, but the insurance companies are are terrified of this whole situation. I mean, a couple sure. of years ago, one went almost bankrupt. Uh, some did go bankrupt. And so there's a real big risk to, uh, to insurance companies in the long term as well. And I know some areas in the front range here, there, there are towns that won't even offer fire risk insurance because you have made the choice to build in a highly fire prone area. What is the biggest misconception about wildfires that you run into when you talk to non-scientists? I think the cl climate versus weather mm. is one of the big ones. So how can climate change be uh, impacting this when it's really this local issue? It's the weather that's driving the fire. And that kind of makes me cringe when I hear it. So you th I think of 
climate and weather in two different ways, where climate is regional, weather is local. And a fire can't start unless the fuels have been primed, unless the, the, the vegetation has dried out and it is a warm enough temperature regionally for a prolonged period of time that when an ignition starts, that localized weather can now kind of take off. The wind-driven events, the um, all of these small micro uh, nuances in that local scale environment can now propel that fire into a more kind of larger uh, erratic behavior. That something that we're seeing today, where now regional scale fuels are dry enough that those local weathers can really create this uh, large, unexpected wildfire event. Looking forward in the climate models, how much worse does this get at various levels of average temperature rise? What, what, yeah, what does that mean the, going forward? That's a big concern. So what we would have expected in 2100, we're seeing this year, essentially. So the climate models are... Wow, are predicting what we should be seeing, but we're at a much quicker rate. And the the problem with climate change is it has a lot of inertia behind it. So even if the global economy said, "Okay, today we are going to reduce our CO two emissions, we're going to change the way that we operate, and we are going to be a hundred percent renewable, and we will combat climate change starting today," well, because climate is regional, it has a lot of inertia, it's going to take decades for it to slow down enough that we won't see the, that we will see the effects of our change tomorrow. So these are conversations, unfortunately, we are having when we're at kind of critical, the, the critical point when we should have been more cognizant of these conversations 20, 30 years ago when we started having them. Uh, obviously, you're the science guy, not the policy guy, but you've done a lot of thinking about the policy implications of your research. So if a president or if a Western governor gave you a magic wand or unlimited policy authority, what changes would you put in place when it comes to forests and homes and wildfires? The couple things I've been thinking about again is that prescribed burning. We are we have chosen to live in fire prone areas. In the Western United States, it almost all of it is prone to wildfire. And we've created this environment that fires are now bigger and blanket much, much greater areas of the West with smoke than they would have otherwise. So a prescribed burning is going to be key, and we need to be okay with and recognize that smoke will be part of our life uh, in the off season as well. And luckily in the off season, because the fires are, they're smaller, they're burning in different conditions, the smoke will be different as well. So it would be a, a much less of an invasive smoke that we're currently experiencing right now. And especially current, that uh, San Francisco and other places have experienced. They're not going to spend all of March under this same haze that they're no. spending September in. No, not, not at all. I mean, there will be faint whiffs of smoke here and there, depending on wind directions, but it'd be much less in your face. And so that's one of the biggest things that I would push towards. 
But in addition to, I mean, we're seeing so many millions of homes being put in, in the line of fire that we need to change the way we build. I mean, there was a community in Mendocino County a couple of years ago that built right on top of a burned area that happened in 1960. 50 years later, 60 years later, the same climate conditions, the same wind patterns drove that same type of fire right through the community again. And so we need to learn from our past mistakes in building in these locations. And so building in proper locations using the proper materials is going to be critical in order to reduce the number of homes being destroyed. In four fires alone this year, almost 4,000 structures were destroyed. And those could have been could, could have been either reduced or eliminated completely from this conversation. It sounds like much of the same situation that we see with flooding and hurricanes in, in the Gulf and in, in Louisiana mm-hmm. and also up, up into the Carolinas where it's a wash, rinse, repeat, but we know that hurricanes are going to be getting worse. <laughs> yes, without a doubt. I mean, this you could, you could have these same conversations in building better and in better locations uh, for most of the natural disasters we're seeing. Where are the gaps currently in wildfire and climate research and and what's next for you in terms of what you're going to be looking at? So the one big thing that I would like to start to refine and kind of make, make this conversation a little more nuanced is uh, improving what we know about the wild and urban interface. So right now it is at a quite coarse scale census block group, um, which can vary from uh, less than a kilometer to multiple hundreds of kilometers square, depending on where you are in the U.S. So using what we used in this particular study, the Zillow database, I like to use that as a proxy to start refining the WUI to understand that more localized variation that we can't glean from the current, uh, the, the current data set. And there is also this really u- unique opportunity in that, in that direction where the WUI Oh, I'm sorry. WUI is Wild Interface Interface. Yes, as an thank acronym. you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I throw these out there and I assume everyone knows. I apologize. <laughs> but the, 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 the unique part about the current data set, it, because it's based on census data, we only have three decades, 1990, 2000, and 2010. Yet the Zillow record goes back to 1820. And it's yearly. So we could really see um, a more nuanced growth of not only housing a development across the United States, but the development of the WUI. And we can maybe co-locate those kind of pushes in WUI to policy uh, decisions at that time. And we can start to refine how policy was to, to create some of, those, uh, some of those communities in the wild and urban face that we know now are at most threat and refine what we, what we did then and improve on those decisions in the future. So you must really be looking forward to getting 2020 census data, if that's going to increase your available yes. data by 33%. <laughs> exactly. I've been thrilled. I, I filled out that census report uh, within, within minutes. So I'm very excited and eager to see what's actually happening and where that growth is occurring. Um, and how can we improve some of these models? It's going to be critical in the coming years. All right. Well, we will definitely look forward to that. Nathan Metkowitz is an ecologist and data scientist who focuses on wildfires and the wildland urban interface. Nate, thank you so much for your insight and your time today. 
It's been an absolute pleasure. That'll do it for this episode of Go West Young Podcast. My thoughts go out to everyone who's lost their home or been evacuated from these fires and the millions more suffering through the smoke and haze blanketing the West right now. If there's one takeaway that I got from that conversation with Nathan, it's that we have some very hard decisions ahead of us as a region and a nation. Obviously, rakes are not going to cut it. We have to address climate change in the long term. But in the short term, communities and local governments and the Forest Service can all take steps right now to reduce these megafires, but we have to be willing to spend the money and make good choices that may not be popular in the short term, especially when it comes to prescribed burns and how and where we rebuild. It's not going to be easy. If you found this episode insightful, I would appreciate it if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts so other listeners can find us here. I'm Aaron Weiss. On behalf of the whole team at the Center for Western Priorities, thanks again to Nate Metkowitz for joining us. Thanks to you for listening.